I'm Maisa Jalbout, and you're listening to The Impact Room, brought to you by Philanthropy Age. We're here to go beyond the cliches and job titles that tend to dominate discussions about philanthropy and development and ask tough questions about difficult issues. Our guests are carefully chosen because they and their organizations are making a real difference to our world. The best social entrepreneurs are those who are able to put themselves in the shoes of the people they are actually serving. A younger generation really feels motivated and excited to self-identify as social entrepreneur and to seek out the support to really scale up, you know, an impact-driven business model. Today in the Impact Room, we're talking about social enterprises, for-profit companies with a social aim. People often associate them with women doing handicrafts or making jewelry, but they're also social enterprises offering services like translation, web design, and microfinance, as well as some that provide renewable energy solutions to off-grid communities or give smallholder farmers access to markets. Take Easy Solar, for example, a social enterprise providing energy solutions to off-grid homes and businesses across Sierra Leone and Liberia. In only six years, we have built meaningful social and economic impact. We have created 800 clean energy jobs. We have avoided over 75,000 tons of greenhouse gas emissions. We have provided 720,000 people with energy access and saved households in Sierra Leone a total energy cost of over $27 million. And we have only just begun. Closer to where I am in the Middle East, there is FabricAid, a Lebanese social enterprise which collects old clothes to either recycle or sell at a low cost to communities in need. Our first goal is to give a second chance to pre-loved clothes while maintaining a social and environmental cause. When you buy from us, you will not only save tons of clothes from ending up in landfills, but most importantly, you will be contributing to our mission of providing clothing for people in need in a dignified manner. All proceeds are reinvested in fabric aid to sustain the social enterprise and multiply its impact. Easy Solar and Fabric Aid are two success stories, but not all social enterprises manage to scale or become sustainable. Even the best ideas can be hard to execute, and without the right funding and in challenging environments, many become dependent on grants or simply fold altogether. In this episode of The Impact Room, I want to dig into what makes social enterprises successful and why so many fail. How has the sector evolved over time, and how can philanthropists and impact investors and private businesses support social enterprises? To explore these questions and more, I spoke to Acumen founder, CEO Jacqueline Novogratz, and Mirna Atallah, executive director of Alfanar, the Middle East's first venture philanthropy organization. First up, Jacqueline Novogratz, whose nonprofit Acumen has pioneered the investment of patient capital into social business, creating innovative corporate and social partnerships to help take organizations to scale. A serial entrepreneur and the author of New York Times bestseller, The Blue Sweater, in 2017, Jacqueline was named by Forbes magazine as one of the world's 100 greatest living business minds. Welcome to the Impact Room, Jacqueline. Thank you so much, Mesa. Firstly, how do you define a social enterprise, or better yet, who do you define as a social entrepreneur? So a social enterprise is a business or uh, an organization that applies the tools and practices of business 
to solve social problems rather than focusing on maximizing profits for shareholders. They're mission-driven. They use revenue as a means, if you will, to achieve their social goals and not revenues and profits as the end in and of itself. So a social entrepreneur would be those individuals who are driven to solve big social problems and again, using the tools and the practices of business to do so. I mean, effectively, you are a social entrepreneur, aren't you? I am a serial social <laughs> entrepreneur. Yeah. You started Acumen back in 2001. You have seen it grow and change. Can you give our listeners a glimpse into how has the sector changed from over 20 years ago? So I would actually say that 20 years ago, there barely was a sector. Uh, if anything, it was quite nascent. Bill Drayton, the founder of Ashoka, spoke about social entrepreneurs back in the early 90s. But as so often with social change, it took 10 years really even to get to the starting blocks. When I started Acumen, uh, both on the supply and the demand side, we had challenges on the demand side, there weren't very many social entrepreneurs because so many saw the world as bifurcated between either business as usual, maximizing shareholder value, or as charity slash nonprofit. And on the supply side of impact investing, uh, we were truly one of the very first. Over 20 years, we've seen an amazing ecosystem grow um, from the efforts of many different players uh, on both sides again, and I would say including thought leaders, influencers who have been following the rise of this and concurrent with a growth of social entrepreneurs and impact investors to the tune of billions, if not trillions of dollars on the impact investing side. Um, so have we seen a new generation that wants to see business change and be more responsible for its environmental impact, its social impact, not only in terms of reducing its environmental footprint, if you will, but being proactive in contributing to the world. And that's really exciting on every level. Absolutely. It is very exciting. And, you know, presumably you're learning all the time and adapting the approaches that you're using all the time to meet new needs of, of social entrepreneurs mm. who are tackling new challenges, you know, to support them in you know, a, a very different uh, market economy than 20 years ago. Uh, you've recently done a survey of 150 social entrepreneurs. What stood out for you from that research and how is it shaping your approach going forward? Um, first is what I just talked about, that we are indeed seeing a new generation demanding more of corporations and more of that generation going into starting or joining social enterprises. The second is that for social enterprises to grow and scale, finding ways to partner with corporation is critical because the social enterprise can understand what it actually takes to meet the needs of people who've traditionally been left out of markets. And therefore they start to define a new market but to actually grow that market when people have very limited ability to pay or access 
often requires partnering either with corporations or governments. The thrilling thing is that we're already seeing this happening, and I believe it is a harbinger of good things to come in the future. So if you will, a couple of examples. We highlighted a company called Promethean Power Systems in India. It's a company that partners with a major dairy company in India to strengthen milk supply chains through off-grid milk chillers. In other words, refrigeration units that allow smallholder farmers to take their few units of milk in the morning. They might have two, three cows. They bring it to a chilling station. And historically, they could only serve to local markets. Promethean becomes the go-between between the chilling units and this big dairy. And thus far, they've installed about 1,200 units, serving 60,000 smallholders, which is about 300,000 family members. They've chilled 700 million liters of milk and saved about 3 million liters of diesel. So you start to see how this aggregation of very, very small local home-based enterprises can actually benefit all of the different stakeholders if we start thinking differently from the ground up, if you will, as to how we put together new kinds of systems to solve our big problems in a way that include people who've been left out, overlooked from our systems. You mentioned it, but could you uh, elaborate a little bit more for our listeners? Why is it so important to pair social enterprises with corporations? There are a few reasons. One is the, the development of a much more robust supply chain that actually includes smallholders, and by smallholders, I mean you know, family units, whether you're farming or doing dairy, in ways that actually provide them more compensation. Historically, farmers would barely sustain themselves on their little plot of land because they didn't have a market to sell to other than the local market. Or they would interact with middlemen who would often buy from them at the height of the harvest when the prices were very, very low. And so it's no surprise that 80% of people living in poverty are smallholder farmers. Today, there's been a shift and more enlightened corporations are recognizing that if we are going to integrate smallholders in a way that actually bring them revenue and greater livelihoods, we have to do things differently. And so we're essentially integrating in a much more robust way the supply chain so that you start to tilt toward the recognition, both in terms of as a contributor and in terms of revenue, a smallholder. Most social enterprises require that other side for, for buying. Another example would be um, Uncommon Cacao, which is a company that we have supported in Colombia. They negotiate with the farmers based on what it actually costs the farmers to produce cacao or the, the cocoa for chocolate. Chocolate is historically an industry that pays terribly low wages. In fact, it's mm -hmm. often called one of the remaining industry where modern slave labor still practiced. Five million smallholder farming families represent 90% of all the cacao that is turned into chocolate. And on average, they make under $2 a day, just to put that in perspective. Mm -hmm. So Uncommon works with the farmer so that they can get the highest quality, helps them create that quality, and then prices the cacao based on what it costs the farmers to produce. 
If that's all they did and they didn't have a market, they would fail. Uncommon then goes out into the global marketplace to find those corporations that are recognizing that their customers not only want high quality chocolate, but want to know that the people that are producing their chocolate are being fairly paid and are included in the supply chain of chocolate. So Uncommon now sells to hundreds of corporations, including well-known companies like Valrona Chocolate out of Belgium. That's the importance. A second reason would be to get distribution for their products. So we have a solar company called Delight, which in the early years was making solar products um, and trying to build a, mo- um, a market that had never existed before. People depended on kerosene. They would pay a little bit of money every single day. Building a market where people have never had a practice of using Solar, for instance, is really, really hard to do. Your customers are very poor. You don't have infrastructure. You're fighting a lot of incumbents, in this case, kerosene mafias or diesel mafias. And so for Delight to grow in those early years, they needed volume while they were building markets where low-income people could also buy themselves. And so they partnered with Total, who did two things. One, they made bulk purchases of the Delight units. They made them available for sale at their petrol stations across Africa. Those institutional relationships allowed Delight to build up a revenue stream that then also allowed them to really learn what it would take to serve very low-income people as customers rather than to see them as recipients of charity. And when you look at this company today, which has has served more than 100 million low-income people. Just imagine what it would have taken had they just used charity and had they just relied on markets, that this focus and these partnerships, it also would have failed. It's this kind of approach, looking at the at partnerships, at businesses, the tools of business, um, not as the end in itself, but as means to solve these big problems. The exciting thing about doing this NISA for 20 years is that all of this was an idea 20 years ago. I can see us as a world solving the moonshot of universal electrification. Just from our companies over the last 20 years, mostly in Africa, but also in India and Pakistan, we've seen 40 companies reach over 230 million customers or people, which represents 30% of all low-income people who have gotten access to off-grid solar in the last 15 years. There are common factors to the success stories that you're sharing, and I wonder if it's common across all of them. And certainly some of your social enterprises have gone on to win prizes. Recently, you had two of your investees recognized as finalists in the Prince William's Earthshot Prize. Uh, And Haiti, with its a greenhouse in a box model, actually went on to win. Would you elaborate a little bit about that and tell us if sort of the common factors for their success are the same to the examples that you just highlighted as well? That's such a great question. Yes, yes, and yes. Um, (laughs) The number one is, is the ethos, the character of the social entrepreneur. That matters more than anything else. That character is grounded in what we would call moral imagination, first and foremost. The best social entrepreneurs are those who are able to put themselves in the shoes of the people they are actually serving 
see them as customers and understand what it would take so that those low-income people could make their own decisions, solve their own problems through participating in whatever marketplace they're helping to build. KT had this in spades. When they made the decision to work with smallholders in India who were dealing with the ravages of climate crisis, they started by understanding the farmer's problem. That connects to the second characteristic, which is deep listening. They didn't come in with an assumption of what their own ideas were. They really worked with the farmers to understand what the farmers wanted and needed and were willing and therefore able to pay. The third goes on to the impact investing side. To do all of this takes a lot of time. It takes mistakes starting again. And so Acumen's patient capital um, was absolutely critical in enabling them to have the time to learn what it would actually take to build a viable business. Uh, We started off um, supporting them at the angel level and then brought them to another level of what we would call our patient pioneering capital. KT also knows how to partner, but what they did better than anybody was number one, design a technology that would work for very low income people. In this case, a greenhouse in a box. These are affordable, modular greenhouses that allow a farmer with one acre to use only a tenth of their land to build these little greenhouses um, that would enable them to essentially double their productivity on a tenth of their land. And so the farmer can make an investment that she sees repaid in time. They're dramatically reducing the amount of water that's used, the amount of fertilizer, and therefore having a positive impact on climate change as well. And they have a viable business, but they always put the smallholder at the center of everything that they did. They had the humility to to learn, to fail, to start again. They understood how to partner And they had the determination to do this for many years. Indeed, I think this will be the life's work of the co-founders, Satya and uh, Kashik. I love the the passion that you have in telling these stories. You're so invested in them. And I'm sure our listeners are going to be eager to learn more about each of these social entrepreneurs or social enterprises and will provide links. I'm sitting in the Middle East where I feel there is so much potential for social entrepreneurship, Mm. yet we've been growing at such a slow pace. What do you think about that? In the Middle East, I have met incredible social entrepreneurs, young people that want to solve big problems. They see them around them. And it doesn't matter if I'm in the UAE or Saudi Arabia, really anywhere. And I would include Pakistan there where we are very active. Um, even though it's not technically Middle East. But um, they want to make change. Many young people particularly don't see the capital coming to them. And I would say it's not the will. It's not the desire from from the new generation. But the capital doesn't exist in ways that they need the capital. Mm -hmm. They'll go after, and I've seen this too many times, they'll go after venture funding, Mm -hmm. The venture capitalist might say, yes, but I want 90% of your company. That is not the kind of partnership that these social entrepreneurs need. Absolutely. And they're nonprofits, um, a real discomfort with a revenue generating model. So we need the right kind of capital. And right now it doesn't exist in the way it needs to exist. 
The second reason is the need to redefine success. For many young people, reputation, honor uh, is so important and the family pressure that they feel either to join the family business, and I would actually say this is particularly true of young men, but for young women, there's a whole other uh, set of reasons that family members often are the, the, the biggest holders of the status quo. Either families will say, you know, don't waste your time doing some charity thing. I need you for real business. Or I didn't raise you as my daughter to be out there trying to create some newfangled kind of company. I need you to be a doctor or a lawyer or <laughs> uh, to stay home. This sounds very and, familiar. And in a way, it goes back to your first question. 20 years ago, there really wasn't a sector. It takes time for social movements to take root. And where I feel a sense of rebirth today, 20 years after starting this, is that I can see we're at an inflection point. And now all of us need to do everything we can with a new level of urgency to make this not the social enterprise on the edges, but the definition of what all enterprises require to do. Where do you see some of the potential coming from? What, what are you excited about? Well, the thing that, I'm, that I have the most control over from Acumen's perspective that really excites me goes to the energy story that I started to tell. In 2007, there were 1.5 billion people on the planet without access to light or electricity. The world has done a lot to change that, and Asia has been a remarkable success story. But Africa has been very much left behind. We're still looking at a continent, a very young continent, with a 45% electrification rate. That is fully unacceptable. On the other side, because of those social entrepreneurs like Delight, who we invested in in 2007 at the prototype stage, the 40 companies that Acumen has invested in over the last 15 years have brought light and electricity to 230 million people, which, as I said, represents 30% of all people on earth um, who've gotten access to off-grid solar in this way. That gives you a through line to what it would actually take to bring electricity to every human being on the planet. There's no reason we cannot do it, but the only way we will do it is to move away from business as usual and be driven not by where we can get the most profits, but by putting the right kind of capital together with the right kind of character to go into very hard to reach markets across 22 sub-Saharan African countries and solve the problem once and for all. That's what I mean by the power and potential of social entrepreneurship, not to live at the edges, although I think most innovation starts at the edges, but take that innovation and build it through partnership and infusions of the right kind of capital and create blueprints and business models for how we finally, as a world, solve our toughest problems. Jacqueline, listening to you, I think it's impossible for, for any philanthropist or you know investor to not want to join you on, on this journey. We have a lot of philanthropists who are also investors who listen to our podcast. What advice would you give them to, you know, get involved? Um, so you're, you'll laugh, but what I advise um, philanthropists, and I do speak to many 
um, well beyond acumen is um, the best way to start is to just start um, that too many philanthropists wait to find their purpose to be sure that they know what works. It can be intimidating, particularly at the beginning when someone is doing their philanthropy and particularly if you're looking to do it in a non-traditional way because there are failures. These are areas that are highly complex and you hear everyone from Bill Gates to Mo Ibrahim talk about how doing philanthropy in a very effective way is harder than making money. And so um, the best way that we learn anything is to just start be willing to make the mistakes and learn from them and see what it, where that step takes us. I, I would even say in terms of finding your purpose, what brings you the most passion, when you see a problem that you're drawn to, take a step toward it, see who's doing work, find the leader who appeals to you, because this is also a practice of finding character. Because the social entrepreneurs that are most successful are those that have the determination, the grit, the persistence to follow the thread of their curiosity until they have solved the problem. Partner with them. Think about that partnership not in a one-year term, but in multiple years, because they need someone beside them, not only to give them the confidence, but to use one's social capital, your networks, the, the people that you know so that you can bring others along with you. I think we too often focus on the issue area that we care about when what we should really focus on is the leader who will build. Find those intermediaries, and there are many of them, that are doing the due diligence for you so that you don't have to do all the spade work to really understand what's working and what's not working. One of the exciting things that's happened in the ecosystem is that there are different kinds of intermediaries like Acumen that have access to extraordinary young social entrepreneurs. At Acumen Academy, we have identified, supported, linked, hopefully inspired over 1,300 social entrepreneurs, including many from South Asia, but also some from the Middle East. Um, these are remarkable individuals whose character has already been identified, become parts of those kinds of communities and learn with them. Remember that you don't have to do everything yourself. I love that. It's, it's similar to advice I give to, to philanthropists, not just around social entrepreneurship, but, but even in how they direct their funding. Find the individuals and the organizations that are doing a good job and do everything you can to, to support them um, rather than... Um, you know, uh, trying to to solve it your, yourself. Uh, trust trust that people are invested and have dedicated their life and there's a lot of knowledge out there and try to be part of that community and that knowledge and that growth. Uh, and it seems to be the same for, for the social entrepreneurship sector. One of the things that, you know, as there is more pressure on companies to be more responsible. There certainly seems to be some confusion among people. The lines perhaps are getting a little bit blurry between, you know, profit-driven companies and social enterprises. Are you seeing that? I mean, 
Are you seeing that the distinction is becoming a smaller? Does it even matter? But, but it is a question that comes up very often. There's always confusion around who is doing great work and who is greenwashing, if you will. And because there is such a drive from the consumer class and from a younger class for purpose, we are indeed starting to see companies that haven't actually changed their ways claiming mission-driven operations or putting that they're putting purpose at the center. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing because I have come to believe in my age that language often um, precedes change. What's important, though, is that we hold to account those individuals and organizations that are making claims to purpose and effectiveness. These are very complicated problems, and we need a different type of character, a different kind of, of, of leadership quality if we're going to solve them. Jacqueline, um, I can't thank you enough. You've really provided invaluable insights based on such a deep experience in the sector. You've truly inspired me, and I think you will inspire our listeners uh, just the same. Uh, I want to ask you just uh, one fun question. What are you currently reading or have read recently that you think our listeners should also read? So I, I read a lot, and my books aren't that I'm reading right now aren't right at the center of social entrepreneurship, but they, they do very much connect to this work because I think my whole life connects to this work. So I would say the, the first book that I'm almost finished is called The Awakened Brain by Lisa Miller. This is a book that actually uh, connects neuroscience to our yearning for spirituality as a species, as human beings. And I believe, Lisa, that the framework that we need in the world today has to be one that moves from the individual and a profit-driven mentality to one that puts our shared humanity and the sustainability of the earth at the center. And that, by definition, is more a more spiritual outlook, a moral outlook. Um, I actually think this is where so much of the so-called developing world has a lot to teach the more individualistic West. And what's exciting to me about The Wake and Brain is that Dr. Miller looks at this from a neurological perspective and connects it to science. It's not just um, a moral treatise, if you will. The second book, which I'm at the beginning of, is called Home in the World, and it's the autobiography of Amartya Sen. Amartya Sen, the Indian economist, mm -hmm. Nobel laureate, was and is hugely influential in the construct of acumen with his respect for markets and his understanding that we need to control markets and not fully be controlled by markets. And, um, and his focus on the idea of freedom as development. So it's a pretty extraordinary book of his very extraordinary life. Um, and then the third, because I start every morning with poetry, is a new book by my friend Padraig um, Otuma. Um, Padraig is from Northern Ireland and really understands the nature of conflict and is also one who can hold these tensions of the material and the spiritual um, just in extraordinary ways. And this is a compendium of um, beautiful poetry that includes a wide range of poets from around the world. 
Those are three great suggestions. And thank you so much for uh, sharing them with, with us. Jacqueline, thank you for being on the Impact Room. Thank you so much. It's been a real privilege um, to be in conversation with you, Lisa. And um, I look forward to more conversation. I'm Lisa Jalbut, and you're listening to The Impact Room, brought to you by Philanthropy Age. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My next guest is Mirna Atallah, the Executive Director of Al-Fanar, a venture philanthropy organization seeding and supporting social enterprises in Lebanon, Egypt, Jordan, and Palestine. We heard earlier from one of Al-Fanar's investees, Fabric Aid, which recycles clothes to support communities in need and save landfill. Al-Fanar has also backed Netakallam, a platform for refugees to become language teachers, and the Amal Project run by the Future Eve Foundation in Egypt, which provides vocational and financial literacy training, microloans, and project support for widows to launch and run their own businesses. For full disclosure, I'm a board member of Al-Fanar, which makes their work very close to my heart, and why I'm very excited to have Mirna joining us today. Welcome to the Impact Room, Mirna. Thank you, Mesa. It is such an honor to be here today. Alfanar has a large and growing portfolio of social enterprises. If you had to choose two that really stand out for you, which would they be and why? You've alluded to a few of the great, you know, successes out of our portfolio. So, you know, maybe I'll just elaborate on, for example, the Amal Project, which is run with a local social enterprise in Egypt called the Future E Foundation. And this was one of our 2022 beacons of social change. Uh, Future Eve was looking to address a problem within a particularly disadvantaged group in Egypt's poorer communities. These are widows or female breadwinners. It is estimated that 57% of poor households are actually headed by women. And so we took a punt on this organization 10 years ago with the support of other really like-minded and remarkable donor partners like the Global Fund for Widows, which also sort of alerted us to the particular challenges of this subset of women. And we began to provide them with vocational training, financial literacy training, widow banks, as well as social microfinance. So this is microloans that are lower than market rates, which can be very, very high when you go to the commercial microfinance institutions. And what we have found over 10 years has been remarkable. This endeavor, if you will, was just a pilot, but you know, this investment has grown from 200 widows in three villages to over 21,000 widows in 90 villages across four governorates, a 100% repayment rate, women are a great investment, <laughs> um, and a 37% on average um, increase to take-home income on the back of these microloans. And the widows are working in a plethora of different uh, sectors, you know, from poultry rearing to small clothing shops, etc. And we're now in the process of basically standardizing the approach and the model, what we've learned after these 10 years, to create something of a social franchise and enable Future Eve to expand the Amal project across Egypt, as well as to another Arab country. I have to stop you there just to say that I love this project. I am so excited to see Al-Fanar take it 
to the rest of the region. And I just want to reflect on the fact that there's so few initiatives like this in the Middle East. And, and often we've seen big organizations skip out on funding projects that support women in the region because there is this belief that there isn't enough in the way of projects that are worth scaling and there isn't enough investment coming from the region. So given what you just shared about the ML project, would you say that the times are changing and donors, philanthropists, um, they should be ready to work with you on a project like this because it's ripe for growth? I couldn't agree more. You know, Alfanar has been around for 18 years. We are the first and oldest venture philanthropy organization in the Arab region. And it has undoubtedly, you know, been slow going in terms of partnerships and donor support for these types of initiatives. I think, though, what we're seeing reflected in the region a little bit more slowly than others, undoubtedly, is a growing appetite to partner, to pool capital, and to trust platforms that are really local, not just go to you know, international partners that are implementing top-down, but platforms like Alfanar that are a trusted, credible, transparent you know, space to bring together what actually I learned on this podcast from one of your other uh, speakers, activist philanthropists individuals, foundations, even some international aid organizations are exhibiting growing appetite for partnering to drive sustainable change. And that's really at the core of why, you know, we're interested in backing social enterprises is that at the end of this kind of process, the hope is that we turn back to our donors and partners and say, look, we didn't just seed a feel-good project that died on the vine because the funding ran out. On the contrary, we put in place and left with lots of funding and technical assistance and non-financial support and impact management. You know, the suite of what Alfenar provides, we left a sustainable change agent that will go on to impact more and more widows, more and more children, but will really ultimately change the face of a region that you know very well is, is ailing. So I think that there is growing appetite. It's reflected globally. Um, and we can talk maybe a little bit more in detail about the other opportunities to pool that capital to drive bigger and more scalable change. And, and just on that point, I mean, for those who are not from the region, don't know it as well, what have the barrier has been, why has it been such a challenge to grow the sector over this long period of time? You know, do you think uh, what you just outlined will help you overcome that? I mean, there are multiple, I think, barriers to the growth of the social enterprise ecosystem, which are changing with the help of Alfanar and other organizations like ourselves. I mean, there's a macro barrier, which we cannot forget. Poverty levels worldwide have been dropping consistently. And yet in the Middle East and North Africa, they have been increasing. It is the only you know, region in the world where they are increasing consistently since 2014. We have multiple conflicts, economic crises, and you know what we call in, the, in our investor speak, an error factor that you know, tends to challenge us even more significantly than some of the other poorer areas uh, globally where impact investing has taken off. The benefit to organizations like Alfanar who have, 
are really embedded in the community. This is not arm's length investment. We have teams on the ground in Cairo, in Amman, in Beirut, and, and hopefully, you know, increasingly elsewhere who are working very, very closely with these social enterprises. So it gives certainly a, I think, assurance to encourage donors and partners to adopt or to support and get engaged in what is essentially a patient capital model. But it also allows us to troubleshoot very quickly and to never be surprised, if you will, by what's happening. You know, we're not waiting for a report <laughs> to react or support um, an organization that may face the Beirut explosion or the crumbling, really, of, of the economic system, not just in Lebanon, but we're seeing in Egypt today. Um, and so we're troubleshooting with these organizations very quickly. I think this is giving greater assurance to partners and donors to, you know, possibly come on board. I think we can't also deny, Mesa, that I think global philanthropy um, messaging is shifting the focus to scale. And so that is having some something of a trickle effect onto the region. And we see, you know, maybe the lack of impact investment as an opportunity to disrupt the ecosystem to contribute positively in the next phase as well. Yeah, I want to talk to you about impact investment in just a moment. But I guess maybe one other reason could be that more and more philanthropists are looking for their contribution, their investment to be more sustainable, to generate uh, funding that then goes back into growing other initiatives? I think that's your spot on. I think, you know, I, I was speaking to a new partner today, and we were talking about an education investment. And I explained, you know, there's an ed tech element to deliver high quality digital um, education tools to poor children across Lebanon. But that's not where we're going to stop because Al-Fanat also is developing, you know, with our technical assistance, management support and the funding toolkit, that organization's capability to also self-generate revenue and deliver its ed tech, essentially, you know, capability as a consultancy service. And so that's a cross-subsidizing model. And the donor said that's exactly why we really like this partnership, because we can see that what we're contributing to has a measurable goal in terms of, you know, number of children who will be reached with quality education and, you know, learning outcomes connected to that, but also that there's a hope for financial sustainability and the multiplier effect, you know, being able to impact more and more children, you know, when we exit, but also that this funding can also be recycled because a portion of our own funding, we structure at Alfanara 0% repayable so that even there you have a payback and pay forward effect. Yeah, you're talking about a very different ecosystem around social enterprises. I mean, perhaps one of the reasons that philanthropists or donor agencies haven't been as attracted to social enterprises in the past is because traditionally, too many of them have been focused on crafts or low profit margin sectors that are important and fill a niche, but they're hard to sustain, let alone scale. Are we starting to see a new generation of social entrepreneurs emerge, ones that are interested in tackling challenges like 
climate change in ways that could be monetized, as an example? 100%. You know, we've really sort of seen the change and the emergence of a movement. When Al-Fanar was established in Egypt in 2004, the first social enterprise incubator, Nahdat al-Mahrusa, was established. Ashoka just started in, you know, the Arab world. Like, these things were really nascent. And part of the reason why I think you're mentioning, of course, you know, handicrafts focus is many of these organizations were nonprofit registered. They, there was something in the model that had self-generated revenue, but they weren't structured as businesses or as hybrids, at least, you know, which is a pretty common model or structure globally. So with that sort of change 10 years later, plus, of course, the effects of, you know, Tom's shoes and, you know, all kinds of really exciting, you know, social enterprises emerging on the global level, plus incubators and accelerators encouraging these startups, a younger generation really feels motivated and excited to self-identify a social entrepreneur, to register a company, and to seek out the support to really scale up what is essentially an impact-driven business model. You've mentioned FabricAid, and um, I think what's exciting about this model is we really invested very early on. Fabricade identified a, you know, an inefficiency in the secondhand clothing market in Lebanon to start with, and really just made it more efficient. You know, super bright social entrepreneur, young in his years, but you know, saw the failure uh, in the market and was quick to respond to it. We've helped him create. 10 shops or so in Lebanon to branch out to Jordan to now scope out Egypt as the next step. And he's gone from $30,000 in revenue to over a million dollars in revenue. His team has grown from 15 to nearly 100. And he's reaching around 80,000 plus poor customers who find this service valued and come back over and over again. This organization is ripe for impact investment, and we have already taken an equity stake. We've basically, you know, been with them as a trusted guide and investor and seen the potential. And it's a counter-cyclical model. So these entrepreneurs, this new generation that you're alluding to, they are seeing the failures, they are living the failures, they've grown up in the failures, but they are responding, you know, day in and day out, and they want to see that change scale up. And there's no doubt, you know, we're going to see more of them because many of those innovations both are able to impact vulnerable communities and actually respond to rising temperatures and, and climate change challenges that the region is also set to face kind of more aggressively than, than other parts of the world. Absolutely. And I'm so excited about these young social entrepreneurs who really want to tackle these issues head on. And I'm encouraged by the fact that also governments in the region are really prioritizing the issue. I mean, we saw Egypt host COP, UAE's hosting later this year. So hopefully it's going to do nothing but generate more opportunities between governments and social entrepreneurs and perhaps also philanthropists. What is the role for philanthropists in all of this, in your opinion? I think Philanthropy, as historically defined, has the ability to play a catalytic role in helping both consolidate this movement and help scale up the impact of its most promising innovators. 
Philanthropy has the ability to take risks that oftentimes international aid, you know, shackled by uh, fiscal year requirements and, you know, really maybe can't uh, make. But individual philanthropists, family offices, foundations in general have the ability to take some risks. And really and truly what we're providing is isn't even that risky because, We've seen this burgeoning in the Middle East and North Africa of incubators and accelerators backing the startups or the, even the early stage ideas uh, to the point where it's actually skewed the funding to be 50% towards early stage and, and 50% towards growth stage. That's actually quite risky because many of those don't get past idea stage. At Alfanar, we, we build on that. So we like to not duplicate, if you will, and really take those that are in the growing period and provide them with a more significant package of financial support, technical assistance, and impact management. And so in many ways, it's actually not uh, such a risky uh, offering, if you will, but it does require patience. That's what I would say. And so philanthropists have the ability to kind of go beyond just individual projects and come and join us to really kind of reach a growing number of social enterprises with the right kind of capital and funding support to reach the next level of sustainability and impact. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, you are setting up a, an impact fund to invest in social enterprises that are well positioned to scale. And you are providing or hoping to provide a platform for those philanthropists who want to maybe reduce their risk by being part of a pooled fund, by having that screening uh, done for them by a very credible organization that understands the region, um, for people who are interested in potentially being a part of it. Can you give us an overview? Yes, we have two very exciting initiatives, which um, I believe will not only represent an important change in the way Alfanar achieves impact, but uh, the way we can all work together to drive scalable change um, in the areas that really need support in the Middle East and North Africa. So I'll start first with the um, pooled funding initiative. What we've recognized uh, working on women's economic empowerment over 18 years you know, of venture philanthropy work is that despite you know, the very strong rhetoric on women, actually there are no proper pooled funding initiatives focused on women, regionally speaking. And so we would like to encourage others to join forces with us to leverage lessons learned, but really to raise $5 million to be directed towards 10 regional organizations working on women's economic empowerment. That initiative will be called NAUSIF, uh, which in Arabic means we describe. Uh, and the idea, of course, is that we can describe uh, a stronger, more equitable future for women, especially in a region that continues to rank last in terms of gender equality. So that's on the philanthropy side, um, basically operating grants and zero interest loans to these organizations driving women's economic empowerment. The second initiative is something we've been working on for a while, but is also a first uh, of its kind, and that is um, Lift Ventures, or the first regional impact investment fund. And this, too, 
comes out of a, a certain gap, if you will, uh, that only 1% of the $1 trillion operating and impact investment globally is actually directed to the Middle East and North Africa. And so we're eager to step forward and to also leverage our lessons learned working with social enterprises and businesses with impact to raise a $50 million impact fund that would similarly drive scalable impact, but in this case, also deliver financial return to investors. Mirna, have donors uh, like aid organizations shown any interest in the impact investment fund? Alfanar has had uh, partnerships with international aid organizations in the past, um, and governments have um, a very interesting role they can play in driving sustainable change. And it comes with choosing, of course, to support social enterprise or sustainable ventures, uh, which oftentimes uh, can reverse some of the unintended consequences traditional um, aid programs uh, create in terms of dependency. So we encourage governments to consider partnering with organizations like Alfanar. And I'll give one example where I think it is working very interestingly well because it's patient, of course, uh, it's catalytic and it's bold. Uh, USAID Lebanon has essentially committed 7% of funding for the first close of our impact fund, but the way they have structured it is quite encouraging and something I would um, urge other philanthropists or aid organizations to consider by structuring it as a catalytic grant first loss investment. Um, this funding will basically absorb any losses at first that the fund may incur, thus protecting other investors, but also encouraging others to get involved. And if there are no losses uh, incurred and only gains made, actually that funding will be recycled um, into further use by Alfanar for uh, the support of more social enterprises. So it has a real multiplier effect. Um, and this first loss catalytic grant uh, structure is is really an exciting one that others may want to learn more about um, and possibly apply in their own um, philanthropic strategies. It is a most needed initiative. So I can't wait to see who is going to step up to take the first step here to help you take this forward. And I very much encourage our listeners to do that. Mirna, I can't thank you enough. Uh, before you leave... Just a very fun question for you. What are you currently reading? Is there anything you'd recommend to our listeners? So please forgive me for the plug, okay? Our first country director in Lebanon who has gone on to become you know, a professor at the Yale School of Management in social entrepreneurship. Uh, she's a firecracker of an individual and an exceptional academic penned and wrote the first textbook on social entrepreneurship. And she has just released the second edition uh, with updates from you know, around the world on the movement, but also you know, in the region. So I can include or share with you a link in your show notes. Uh, it is a little bit of a serious read, but it's very fitting. And we'll definitely include a link. Mirna, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Room today. Thank you for having me.
You've been listening to The Impact Room, hosted by me, Maisa Jalbut, and produced by Philanthropy H. Our guests today were Jacqueline Novogratz, founder and CEO of Acumen, and Mirna Atalla, executive director of Alfanar, the Middle East's first venture philanthropy organization. You'll find a list of all the organization's books and articles mentioned by our guests in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, the first in season three, please check out our earlier shows and don't forget to subscribe. For more information about the podcast or to get in touch with any feedback you may have, go to philanthropyh.org or find me on social media at Maisa Jalbu. Until next time.